0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University
1: of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everybody. My name is Scott Havens. I'm the president of The Atlantic. And uh, on behalf of The Atlantic, all my colleagues from The Atlantic and University of California at San Diego and are presenting Underwriters PACE, which is a lily- Oncology Initiative and Qualcomm, and our um, supporting underwriter, Express Scripts. I am very excited to welcome you to the Atlantic Meets Pacific, our third annual. I want to introduce now uh, the Chancellor of the University of California, San Diego, Pradeep Kosla. He has instructed me to not read through his bio, his illustrious and distinguished bio. It is in the program guide, so I will do him the honor of not doing that. Um, But I want to welcome Pradeep, our partner in this venture. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Scott. You're the first person who has listened to me ever. So uh, for that, I'm very grateful. Uh, Welcome, everybody, and uh, good evening. It's a great honor to be here. Um, And... uh, this is the third event of this type, uh, third time we are holding the Atlantic Meets the Pacific. And when I was thinking about this event last year, when I, which was my first year out here, um, I was actually reminded of growing up in India. Growing up in India, Rudyard Kapling, uh, Kipling was a very famous author, right? So what did he say? He said, East is East and West is West, and the twain shall never meet. So I come here and I find that the Atlantic Meets the Pacific, and I said, how could this be? <laughs> This sounds like a near impossibility. And then I realized that there were two visionaries, two sets of visionaries. On our side was Mary Walshock, who's sitting right here, uh, who can make the impossible happen. And on the other side, on the east side, was the Atlantic, and they were looking for this spark. They were looking for this edginess. They were looking for the future. And they found this in San Diego. So Scott, Elizabeth, and Steve. Where's Elizabeth is right there. Where's Steve. Steve, where are you, sir? Okay, so Steve is around here somewhere. So it was their idea, their thought process that got us to where we are. And I can tell you that as chancellor, I'm really proud uh, of the fact that you have chosen us, UC San Diego, and you have chosen San Diego. And I congratulate you on your good taste. (laughs) Um, If you look at who we are, I think this is a campus that was created to be an experimental campus. We were an experiment. And 50 years later, we are still an experiment. We want to be an experiment that keeps on experimenting with itself and that tells the world and that teaches the world by doing new experiments. And we are doing that in the context of a strategic planning exercise at UC San Diego right now. Uh, if you look at the MESA, the MESA is an amazing place where collaboration, if there's one word that defines us, I think it's collaboration, where if you look at places like UC San Diego, Salk, Sanford Burnham, you would say, you know, these places should be uh, competing with each other. And we do. But we compete by collaborating. Uh, We collaborate out here and we compete with the rest of the world. And that's why we are the most dominant place in biotech research in this country, or at least the second most dominant place about to become the most dominant place. So I'm Thank you once again for choosing us, and I thank you for attending. I think you're going to see a great set of events. Uh, if you take the opportunity to tour UC San Diego, uh, you might actually enhance your experience because you will see some amazing things that are going on uh, at UC San Diego in the laboratories. And a lot of the faculty and a lot of the speakers out here are friends of UC San Diego or faculty of UC San Diego. It, and the Atlantic meets the Pacific is a glimpse into. UC San Diego. Let me just say one more reason why I'm proud of this. The Atlantic is a magazine or an institution with 150 year history. And as Steve was telling me, its history is one of consequence. UC San Diego has a 52 year history and its history is one of consequence. In 52 years, we have accomplished that nobody thought any university could ever accomplish. So I'm really excited about this and uh, thank you for picking us. We'll keep on doing this. I hope this is a marriage made in heaven to last forever. (laughs) Welcome, everybody, and thank you.
2: Good evening, everyone. My name is James Fallows. I'm a longtime writer for The Atlantic. I'm delighted to be here for this installation of The Atlantic meets the Pacific. It's been a wonderful partnership. From The Atlantic's point of view, I hope from UCSD's point of view, and from the point of view of encouraging interesting discussion on matters of consequence uh, for uh, scientists, for people all around the world. So I'm delighted to be here. I'm also from Southern California originally. I grew up in the Redlands. Many of my friends went to UCSD, so I'm glad to be home in that way. I'm especially honored, following the Chancellor's remarks and those of Scott Havens, to be able to kick off the discussion with an interview with uh, Ronnie Zeiger who many of you may know of, and I hope you'll know more about him you know, in half an hour from now after we've had a brief discussion and, uh, and you've had a chance to, to answer, to, uh, to ask some questions yourself. The reason I think this is a particularly apt way to begin our, our uh, discussion at this session of Atlantic Meets the Pacific is that almost every interesting trend going on right now in the life sciences and in medical care comes together in a fashion that's going to put you on the spot, that you can help us understand, you can help tee up the discussions we're going to have through the next couple of days, For, because so many of these things involve the interaction of data and new data tools and the basic mechanisms of life themselves and the sociology and politics and anthropology of healthcare professionals and people who, in different stages of life, need to get medical treatment. And you have been in the center of many of those things. Uh, in his recent past, how long ago was your Google stage? How many? I left Google in March of 2012. As your role there for six years was as chief health strategist for Google, right? Where you were you in charge of probably best known to the general public through the flu map? Would you, would you say a word about the flu map? The flu sure.
0: Map? Sure. So, Flu Trends uh, is one of the great projects that uh, that I take credit for, even though I didn't have much to do with it. Um, uh, so, a couple of a couple of really smart engineers uh, came to a few of us at Google and said, "You know, um, I wonder if we could do a better job figuring out where the flu is breaking out by looking at the way people put questions into the Google search box." And several of us said, uh, "That's a crazy idea, and it won't work." Uh, but it sure sounds like fun to try and and they were right and and essentially it's a pretty simple idea very difficult to execute but a pretty simple idea that um, if, you, if you think about the fact that people who are getting sick often uh, Put questions into the Google search box back of the envelope calculation There's probably about the same number of questions being health questions being asked of Google every day than of all healthcare providers on the planet and if you start counting um, those, those questions in, in, an, in a thoughtful way, um, you can make uh, temporal time, uh, time dimension and geographic maps of what seems to be going on. Now, many of us thought that um, mostly you'd be tracking um, news articles and, uh, and reactionary, uh, it would be reactionary data, so not very interesting. But it turns out that enough people um, in a way that you can actually measure Um, do put flu-related questions into the search box, and and you can see patterns there, and and it matches nicely the the curves that the CDC actually counts the real cases, but it's about a week earlier because it's much faster to count queries coming into a search box than to ask people to collect pieces of paper and get uh, data from laboratories, et cetera.
2: And we'll come in a minute to what you're doing now, but just to ask, to follow up on this, has it had any important prophylactic or public health benefit, or is it sort of an intellectual curiosity that you know a week ahead of time where the flu is going to be?
0: I think it's most important as a proof of concept that this is the kind of thing that we can do now. Um, It has been useful uh, to some people in public health and in industry to understand things like, you know, where and how much are people going to need different kinds of resources. But I think most important is the discussion, wow, what does this mean, Uh, the fact that we can do these kinds of things, and what are some of the most useful ways that we can take advantage of this data and what, what are some of the cons- concerns that we need to think about in terms, in terms of being safe with this kinds of data.
2: So let me turn from your nicely teeing up the what does this mean question to, to just spending a minute talking about the interactions of Data, uh, basic scientific information, and the anthropology of, of health it 's a very important phase as we 're going to discuss in the next couple of days in the basic research phenomenon of medical of where the, the new knowledge of the genome is transforming of course, the tools that you and your fellow doctors will be able to to put together we 're using big data on the epidemiological front as you 've been talking about with your uh, flu mapping uh, we 're we're in the middle of new ways in which personal data is recorded and made use of uh, one of the I've just come from DC this morning where everybody is in a uh, lather about the consequences of Obamacare one aspect of which was making uh, electronic medical records more uh, more uh, ubiquitous the pluses and minuses of having your entire medical record be available to your healthcare professional and, and to you etc cetera, etc cetera. tell us now about the work you're doing with smart patients and how you think that addresses the main tensions of what we know, how we can use the new things we know to actually be healthier and have a better relationship with medical providers rather than just being overwhelmed by info.
0: Well, um, I'm a little overwhelmed by the question because, <laughs> uh, because the work that we're doing at Smart Patients I think is, is a relatively small piece of it, but let me give it a shot. Um, just from the, let's take an example in the, the genomic data. So um, today, most uh, community oncologists, which means oncologists that, that are the ones that are practicing in most cities in the country that aren't at, a, at an academic center, um, so this would be an exception, but of course, uh, you know, 80 plus percent of cancer patients in this country get their care in the quote-unquote community as opposed to in, in an academic or center of excellence. And most of those oncologists who have to see lung cancer patients and melanoma patients and kidney cancer patients and sarcoma patients, um, it is absolutely impossible for them to keep up with how quickly science is changing. Not, it wasn't possible 10 years ago. Today, it's a joke uh, to think about that being a realistic thing. Um, you know, all, of, all information now that, that clinicians need to know is, is sort of recycling at five years. is probably a reasonable estimate. So um, what patients are often doing is saying, hey, I just found out uh, that I have lung cancer. Um, what else should I know? And they're asking each other. And they're asking each other in very informed networks. And, uh, and the network uh, vets what's being discussed. Someone brings in something that's uh, obviously um, hogwash. Someone else say, sounds like hogwash. Got any data to support that? And so they're having discussions like one from not too long ago um, in our community. Um, fortunately... My, my oncologist knew uh, what to do, and I have an EGFR mutation. I don't just have lung cancer. I have lung cancer with an EGFR mutation. Um, uh, and it looks like I'm going to start this new drug that targets that mutation. What should I know about this drug? Now, that's, that's a straightforward, hey, I'm about to have an experience that many of you have had. How can I prepare myself for that? But the question that's more interesting um, is, the, is the one of the same kind of patient who says, uh, I'm about to start drug X for lung cancer. Someone says, have you been tested for an EGFR mutation? And they say, what's that? Well, here's how you ask your doctor about it. So there's a lot of questions, a lot of discussions going on in these communities, like, like the, the oncology communities, the cancer communities, and smart patients, which are actually patients talking to each other about what questions to ask their doctors, and sometimes how to ask so as not to offend
2: which is, brings up a, a crucial point. So you are a medical doctor. How many people in this room are medical doctors or health professionals of some kind? How many people have had experience with medical doctors in, in the recent past? Um, I, I think that many people will agree with my assertion that of the three elements you're putting together, one, the basics medical science, second, the new data tools, and third, the sociology of dealing with doctors in particular. The last is likely to be the point of greatest resistance for the sort of crowdsourced sourced um, intelligence. Tell us how you think the sociology of medical practice, the sociology of people dealing with their doctors and nurses and other professionals, how is that changing? How does it have to change to make these tools uh, usable? So I think,
0: I think that the next 10 years is gonna be the hardest time to practice medicine ever. And Great. Yeah, welcome. And, and, and the reason is that we now have a sense of what the future is supposed to look like. Um, we shouldn't be dealing with paper. Uh, we should be capturing data in a way that can, we can then not just read again later, but reason over and learn and see trends and understand what kinds of things are we doing well for our patients with diabetes and what kinds of things are we doing poorly. But the tools that we have today to do that are very much version zero tools. Um, you know, my, the hospital where I moonlight, we just switched from one electronic medical record system to another, and my honest assessment for the re- the reason for that switch is because this other system sucks less than the first one.
2: <laughs> that, that's how public policy usually is. Yes,
0: and 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 that's and that's that's actually reasonable. These are very new tools, and so um, technically we're we're sort of in an infancy. But then, as you su- suggest, sociologically or anthropologically, really the way medicine is going to be practiced in 20 years, let's say, it's going to be much more of a team sport. You know, today we're still in a generation where um, we want to believe that the, that the physician, the clinician, knows just about everything and can transmit the subset of everything to the patient according to what he or she assesses at that time. And frankly, that's just unrealistic. And so not only are we talking about things being more of a team sport, um, I was very delighted to hear the Chancellor use the word collaboration. That, that is the key to improving the practice of medicine in my view. Um, but we're not just talking about the very important collaboration between patient and physician and being a little bit less unilateral, but we're talking about the whole uh, complex of people that's uh, physician and nurse and social worker and data scientist. Um, the data science is going to be a huge part of the healthcare team of the future. And we've only just begun to even realize that medicine needs to be a team sport, much less start to play it as a team sport.
2: So let me ask you about two specific aspects of these interactions and how you think they would change. One, I was mentioning to you a, a few minutes ago. I am blessed to have no, no health problems, but, and I have a doctor I like very much in Washington, D.C., but I note in the recent years when I go see him, he never looks at me because he's writing down whatever I say on his little uh, notepad as, as we talk, which is good, good, and bad the other, so I want to hear about that part of the interaction. Here's the other part. My dad was a small town doctor in Redlands. And he was a beloved figure in the community. But he said all of doctors dreaded when the new issue of Reader's Digest came out. Because there was some new disease. Oh, you know, doctor, I've got pellagra or whatever. People would, and so the modern version of that, of course, is Google. People will come in with their, uh, their, their symptoms. How are doctors and the healthcare system being trained both for human interaction and for dealing with the independently informed patient.
0: I, l- I love that. Independently informed. It's, that sounds like an ICD-9 code uh, waiting to happen. <laughs> so, so I think you know, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, we were in, in a cultural state as far as physicians were concerned where I might say to you in the doctor's room, oh, shit, uh, this patient just came in with 12 pages of printouts from, from that he found on Google and WebMD he's got and, and everywhere else. And he thinks he's got pellagra. And, and I think we're almost over that. We're now at a point where we can say, oh, what would you read? What would you think? Um, Well, tell you what, um, I think that's reasonable. Uh, These, frankly, you just probably shouldn't pay pay attention to these sites. And here's a a handout I have. Uh, These five sites in general are pretty good. Want to do a search together? Now, that last part is something that, (laughs) that I happen to do. Not too many do, but you know what? It actually doesn't take very much time. And and here's what happened if you don't do that. This actually happened to me a few weeks ago. Uh, I was seeing a a couple, a a gentleman and and his wife, and clearly the wife was in charge. And so I was trying to make sure that she was... You feel like
2: you have to mention that. (laughs) Fair, fair. Um,
0: And so I'm I'm slow on the pickup sometimes. And so so I was trying to make sure that she was paying attention to what we were talking about. uh, about the diagnosis and what I thought we should do next. And, and she was sitting there uh, on her phone, and, and I got kind of annoyed, offended. I mean, this is supposed to be about me, right? And, uh, and but I didn't think she was paying attention, so I, so I said, you know, so do you understand? And she turns her phone around and says, so you're talking about this, right? So she was looking it up yeah. to make sure that she understood. She wanted to see the picture of, the sh- of shingles. This was a, a, uh, that was the diagnosis that I thought it was. And, and so I completely missed an opportunity um, to acknowledge a collaborative, uh, a, a collaborative solution there. And um, so I actually do, partly because I'm a really weird uh, person and doctor, but I actually do search with patients. They ask me something I don't know. I, I gain so much more respect from patients by saying, I don't know, let's figure it out together. Now, there's not always time, but these things actually take less time. You know, we talk, we talk so much about the things that we don't have time for half the time at least, um, I think that's an excuse uh, and it really means we're not culturally ready for it. So, uh, but the new, the new version of what I sometimes refer to as that, that WebMD problem from the patient's perspective is the online community problem. Because mm-hmm. it's one thing if you're just reading something and you know, you print it out and, then you, and you can ask your doc about it. It's another if you're talking about it with a hundred of your friends right. or a thousand <laughs> of your friends. And, and that one's much more interesting because of the power of networks. And, uh, this shift is going to be probably more traumatic in some ways because it's a little bit more difficult to control, it's also much a much bigger opportunity because the quality of the information that people can come to if they are incredibly motivated and there's a subset of people in the community who really know what they're doing, um, the opportunity to collaborate with communities like this, obviously I'm biased, that's why I shifted, that's why I shifted my career uh, to work on this, the opportunity to learn from these communities is, I think, a significant untapped resource in our ability to to practice good medicine.
2: And to extend that, there's a parallel to the phenomenon you're talking about in my business, the Atlantic's business of journalism, where compared with a generation ago, the range of information is both much better and much worse. And you can find crowd-sourced excellence and expertise, people writing in real time from Syria or Mongolia or whatever. And you can find the most preposterous fantasies. How is that netting out in medical community knowledge? Is the average better than it seems to be in public info of other sorts?
0: So I think the answer is it depends. A, a distinction... A <laughs> you distinction? could be a journalist. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Um, uh, yeah, I'll tell my wife I'm looking for yet another job. Um, <laughs> the glamour of journalism. <laughs> so a distinction that I've found useful is that between crowdsourcing and what, what some of us have started talking about of, of networks of micro-experts. Crowdsourcing is, is the old story of the, you know, the 1930s uh, county fair. The farmer wants to sell his ox, puts it up on the stage. And someone noticed that if you ask everyone in the audience, 500 mostly illiterate people, how much do you think that ox weighs? and you uh, you take the average of all of the answers, it's remarkably accurate. That's crowdsourcing. That's not what we're talking about here in healthy communities, well-functioning communities, I mean. What happens is if the question is how often should I get a CT scan to check for recurrence of my kidney cancer, the 15 people out of the 200 in that community who have looked at that question before and actually studied the data, talked to clinicians, actually flown to UCSD, let's say, uh, to get a second opinion um, and bring that information back. It's the micro experts um, that know something about that question that lead the discussion. And they are also the ones who organically say to someone else, who "says well, what about this? They'll either answer the question and say, here's why I think your opinion um, is based on faulty data. So, so that's the dynamic of healthy communities. Um, I understand how those communities work when the topic is cancer, because that's, that's what I've been working on for the last couple of years. I think there are certainly communities um, across many different aspects of health uh, which work well, and I'm sure there's a lot that work really poorly. Um, so it's, this is, this is a, both an art and a science that's only just beginning to be understood.
2: So I'd like to go sort of enlightening around over a variety of topics, all of which you touch on in various ways. When you were working at Google, the CEO then of Google, Google, Eric Schmidt, used to say that such were the tools of transparency that if you didn't want something to be known, you better not do it because everything was going to be known. How can we solve the privacy balance with much more of your data, my data, everyone's data about our vulnerabilities, our our genetic predispositions? Do we have policies in place to deal to strike that balance in the right way? Or what should those policies say? I
0: feel underqualified to answer that. Of course, I'll answer it anyway. Um, so I'm going to speak particularly in the health space because I actually I don't really right, talking about medical privacy involved, that well yes. more broadly. So the, the flaw in talking about privacy the way we often talk about it is we talk about it in the abstract. Um, let me give you a, a, an indirect answer first. Um, when we were b- building a personal health record at Google, we asked a bunch of people, so you know, what kind of privacy controls do you want? And the answer was many. And we prototyped a system uh, that had uh, a very thoughtfully put together set of privacy controls. And then we asked real humans to use it. And they said, "Um, can you get these out of the way? (laughs) I don't want these. These aren't helping me solve the problem I'm trying to solve. So the problem with talking about privacy in the abstract is that it's very difficult to have perfect privacy controls uh, without just not playing, right? And so the question is, What is the value of the activity that you're doing, which has some privacy-related downsides, Mm -hmm. and how do we relate the upside and the downside? So, for example, uh, because of who I am, uh, I actually have a copy of my genotypic information, my DNA, at 23andMe, a privately held company. Um, That has some privacy risks. I perceived that the value that I was getting outweighed the risk to me Um, I've already been very public with some of my personal health uh, uh, misadventures. Um, So there's not as much for me to lose, quote unquote, although I thought about it very carefully because it has some implications for my children, perhaps. So I think overall, from a privacy perspective and from a technical perspective, we're doing okay. Could it be better? A whole lot better. But I think even more important is that we need to get used to having these kinds of conversations in the context of the real value that the privacy is potentially offsetting.
2: And just to follow, in the real circumstance of these micro-communities talking about a certain kind of cancer mutation, do, those, do you think those people are exposing themselves in a way that they will regret? Uh, how how is, is that working out?
0: So um, that's a very personal question. Um, so certainly for the vast majority of them, I think the answer is no. Um, I, I, I don't know enough to be able to say absolutely not. Um, they are making explicit decisions. So it's interesting. Um, I've had many conversations with, in, with individuals uh, about, about health privacy issues. When people get really sick, for example, almost everyone I've talked to who has uh, cancer that's, that's not, that wasn't easily cured, um, if you ask them about privacy, they ask you to please move on to the next topic. Get over it. Yeah. We're trying to solve bigger problems here.
2: I have one more short question that we're going to all involve all over the audience, which is a short question because it's so vast and its, its implications. You said the next 10 years are going to be tough for medical practitioners. Is there any hope of the basic cost explosion and disaster of American medicine being uh, c- contained or, or put it onto a more sustainable path?
0: So I think things are going to break a bunch more before they get better. Um, we, have, we have such a complex system that I think that results in an incredible amount of inertia. Um, it's easy to think about sort of the Washington, D.C.-based politics and and uh, the powerful lobbies, but really that's just one dimension of of a system that's, that's deeply connected in ways that many of us can't even observe. And so when you try to change something, it's painful to many different stakeholders. So um, I think that... You know, so my bias is I, I think that uh, often industry is going to help solve a bunch of problems that government can't very well. Um, I also think in, in healthcare in particular, it's probably going to be a lot of small companies that come up with innovations. You mentioned before uh, the issue of your doctor uh, seeming to like your, his keyboard better than you. And, um, you know, we're not too far away from technologies that will allow us to have a conversation and, and have the data that I need Um, not only captured automatically without me having to be a darn transcriptionist, I'm watching my language, (laughs) um, but can also be synthesized so that um, when we're done talking, not only is there a transcript, uh, but there is a value-added information that both you and I can use um, to make our our plan together of how to take care of you.
2: There is a lot we've covered. There's a lot more we could cover, Mm -hmm. but I think you'll all, I hope you'll join me in thinking this has been a wonderful way from Ronnie Zagartis. to Conversations with. Thank you so much. A real tour de force. Thanks.
1: You've been listening to a
0: podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.